You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Here with us today to discuss updates in neurosurgical topics is Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania and the Penn Neurological Institute of the Pennsylvania Hospital, and that is Dr. Neil R. Maholtra. Dr. Maholtra, thank you so much for being with us on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. Thank you for having me. It is certainly our pleasure, and I know you have various clinical interests. Uh, One that I'd like you to tell us a little bit about, if you would, would be your efforts in quality improvement in neurosurgery in general. Well, that's part of a major initiative, I think, on behalf of neurosurgeons in general, and particularly here at the University of Pennsylvania. You know, we know what helps patients, but we don't know how much it helps them from a surgical perspective. And we've also found that our electronic medical record approach that we've been expanding hasn't had the impact in sort of improving quality of care as we had hoped insofar Mm -hmm. as, you know, there's not interchange between various healthcare systems and things of that nature. So as we've thought about how to optimize the data we have and expand upon it and what can we improve, we've thought about quality improvement measures. So within that, what we're starting to do is prospectively collect data on every patient that comes through our door for neurosurgical procedures and then following those patients specifically for outcome data out at three months, one year, and two years so that we can, you know, better determine the quality of life that uh, our procedures provide. That's very interesting. And does this apply to the whole gamut from brain tumors to spinal disease, et cetera? Absolutely. There'll be challenges to expand to all of that because there are cost measures with collecting this kind of data. But we'll do it in a module-based effort, and we are also part of a national effort, which is sponsored by our national organization, ANS and the CNS, to really start to collect data about all these patients. And here we're going to start with what we call lumbar spine module, and it'll be the, the whole gamut of patients with lumbar spine disease. Our colleagues in healthcare, as well as ourselves, recognize that, you know, while well-selected patients do tremendously well and have good return to work and good quality of life, they are outlier patients that don't seem to get the right diagnosis or get the right treatment and have problems. So we're going to try and better determine how to offer the right care to those patients and who should be excluded from surgical interventions because it's, they're not getting enough benefit. That's very interesting, and it sounds like you'll you'll look at short-term as well as much longer-term outcomes. Absolutely. I mean, my long-term goal is to not only follow the patients who ultimately undergo procedures, but follow patients who choose not to undergo procedures. We saw from the SPORT trial published several years ago in the New England Journal of Medicine that, you know, there are some outcome measures that we thought were better for herniated nucleus pulposus or herniated disc disease and other outcomes that were better than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. So patients at 10 years with or without discectomy tend to be about the same. You know, it's changed our thinking how we approach those patients and how we counsel them. For instance, in the office now, I counsel patients more with the concept of how do you want to spend the next four to 10 years? You know, if this is unbearable, we fix this. Mm -hmm. If the symptoms aren't so bad, we kind of stay away from it based on that data that it's going to get better with time. So that's very exciting. So we'll be able to look at a variety of different illnesses and try to understand better which approaches will lead to which outcomes and what might be more appropriate for a given individual. Yeah, I think that'll help us individualize medicine and improve our own practices. I mean, as part of a sort of quality improvement initiative, the goal of this project, uh, which, as I said, is just getting underway, is that I will have individualized data on, so take, for instance, um, quality of life surveys which will be our first set of surveys that we're putting out, I'll be able to see for an individual patient at three months, immediately after surgery, before surgery, three months, one year, and two years, how their quality of life is. Mm -hmm. And that, 
ideally could be set with some warnings or alarms that if there's a significant fall-off in someone's survey, that gets brought to my attention. I can call that patient make sure something else hasn't happened. In addition to that, we'll be able to look at all of my patients for a particular procedure. So if there's some change that I'm missing that, you know, could I be optimizing the way that I do this because I have a fall-off at one year, for instance. So should I be performing instrumented fusions where I'm only doing decompression? So from a personal quality improvement initiative, then we'll have aggregate data at the university level. And mm-hmm. then if we can get this national sort of initiative off the ground, then it's aggregate national data to be able to say, look, this is exactly how patients do. And I think in the end, that'll allow us to provide the best informed consent possible. Here's how a patient like you did with this surgery in mm-hmm. the last three years. It's exciting to hear that it's happening in neurosurgery, and I imagine we'll see this in other specialties as well as there is more focus on outcomes and what is the best or most appropriate treatments for individuals. Well, our colleagues in the thoracic surgery society, as well as some of the general surgery specialties, have really been at the forefront of this and made significant inroads into collecting this data for a number of years. I think the difference that we're adding from neurosurgery is a lot of those groups have studied inpatient mortality post-procedure. And while I think that is important, neurosurgical procedures are often associated with significant long-term morbidity, Mm -hmm. back pain, loss of function from tumors in the motor strip or speech areas of the brain. So adding this longer-term prospective follow-up component, which, you know, hasn't done previously, will hopefully provide a model that as others adopt electronic medical records, they can copy what we've done here and expand it to their own practices in other specialties. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and joining me to discuss updates in key neurosurgical areas is Dr. Neil Maholtra, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Penn Medicine. Dr. Maholtra, let's shift gears a little bit, and we're seeing patients more with malignancies who have metastatic disease living longer. Are there new approaches to help these patients in terms of spinal tumors, spinal metastases? Yeah, certainly our thought process and the treatments we can offer have changed significantly in the last 25 years. Neurosurgery literature, we don't have the largest number of randomized trials, but we do have a few that are quality studies. And Dr. Young and colleagues in 1980 did a randomized trial to look at how patients with spinal metastases did with radiation, radiation plus chemotherapy, or neither. And he found that patients with radiation alone actually did better with radiation alone versus surgical intervention with radiation. That was an important study, and it changed certainly the way that we did things at that time. In the last 20 years, we've demonstrated you know, an ability through development of new types of instrumentation to change our approach, resect more of the tumor, give more decompression of the spinal cord. And so as that process sort of has moved forward, we've changed our thoughts also while this population of patients have been living longer because their chemotherapeutic agents have gotten better and their primary cancers have been controlled better. So they go on to have spinal metastases. So the big picture is we have an increasing size of population with patients with spinal metastases. And we had this longstanding belief that we probably shouldn't operate on them because we're not giving them a better outcome. Well, Patchell and his colleagues took the time to evaluate this because there had been a consensus amongst neurosurgeons and and orthopedic spine surgeons as well that we're probably leaving some patients out of care that probably should be getting care. So Mm -hmm. he, he pursued another randomized trial and was able to demonstrate they had to close the trial early in 2005 or 6 because they were able to demonstrate a significantly improved outcome benefit in ambulation, quality of life, and survival 
for patients who underwent surgical intervention. And so when we look back, we try to figure out why patients did so much better in 2005 than in 1980. What we were able to see is that what you went from in 1980 was a simple laminectomy, which resulted in short-term decompression and then regrowth of the tumor at the primary site with quick onset of compression again. So you weren't giving much surgical benefit. And then because of the somewhat unstable spine at the site of the tumor, they started to kyphose or fold forward, which was associated with a significant amount of morbidity. Mm-hmm. What had changed in the interim was the advent of pedicle screws and anterior reconstruction techniques. So we found that with thoracotomy, taking out a tumor from the front and then putting screws in the back and rods and taking all the tumor out, you get rid of the majority of the tumor burden, you reconstruct the spine, and because you're reconstructing it, you're able to really completely decompress the spinal cord. And so we saw those patients were doing a lot better. And so that's, you know, early 2000s, and then we started to have even better new approaches. So with thoracotomy, there's risk of as much as a 30% 30-day mortality in patients with uh, spinal metastasis from lung cancer, as one example. So there's a lot of mor- morbidity from the thoracotomy. So a change that's occurred has really been sort of industry technology-driven and that was the advent of the expandable cage. So essentially, vertebral augmentation or replacement of the vertebral body that was infiltrated with tumor with a device that we can expand once in a small space. And the reason that that's important to my personal surgical practice and my colleagues that do this a lot is it's permitted to do this whole surgery from the back, from one incision. So there's no thoracotomy, there's no chest tubes, no associated pain. And we started to see significantly shorter hospitalizations because, of course, they don't have a chest tube and, and the related side effects of that. And you can do a, the whole procedure with a relatively reduced blood loss by being able to have this expandable device that you can slide around the spinal cord without manipulating the spinal cord at all. You can reconstruct the anterior column of the spine and the posterior column with the screws and provide the patients with real support, resection of tumor, and the ability to ambulate and get out of the hospital pretty quick. And let me move on because we have just a a few minutes left, and I definitely want you to comment on what your lab is doing in terms of uh, injectable tissue-engineered polymers for the treatment of degenerative disc problems. Can you tell us what's going on with that? Well, I think that's a really exciting field of research translational medicine that I'm working on and a number of colleagues around the country. And essentially, we know that degenerative disc disease, we know low back pain results in 15 million physician visits per year. So it's a huge bottleneck of patients. Mm-hmm. We know that degenerative disc disease is the number one cause of pain and disability in the U.S., and that indirect and direct costs go up to about $50 billion a year in the U.S. If you look through the literature, as much as 2% of GDPs worldwide are spent on patients with degenerative spine disease for lost work and medical care and otherwise. So it's a significant problem. We know that most of degeneration, and take, for instance, the lumbar disc, starts in the nucleus pulposus. Now, the nucleus pulposus is the largest piece of avascular tissue in the body, so it's hard to come up with treatments for it. We know that for all of us in our 30s, we start to have decline in function, essentially decline in water content, and then decline in the ability to transfer forces. As that happens, the nucleus functions less well than the outer layers of the disc, the annulus fibrosus, starts to break down. And then you even have end plate fractures in the vertebral bodies. Mm-hmm. Many of these patients go on to surgery, and surgery is beneficial to the appropriately selected patient, but you know, obviously it's invasive and destructive to the normal mechanics. So what my lab is focusing on, what my interest is, is developing sort of percutaneous treatments, so non-invasive treatments, non-destructive treatments that can be delivered through a needle, for instance, 
on an outpatient basis that would restore normal mechanics. Hmm. And sort of the holy grail of that would be not only to restore normal mechanics, but actually upregulate the normal tissue, upregulate production of the normal cell lines in the nucleus pulposus to provide that water-capturing effect, which would provide the cushioning that the disc needs to perform. So in my lab in particular, we've taken, you know, multiple prototypes. We've narrowed it down to several, but we study prototypes that are elastomeric devices, so essentially injectable in a liquid format that become a semi-solid at the site of the nucleus, not taking out any nucleus and minimizing injury to the annulus by delivery through a needle. And those, through those types of agents, we hope to deliver therapeutic agents, provide mechanical support, and ultimately grow the normal cells there by supporting normal homeostasis. Getting the spine back to how it was when we were 18. Exactly. Mm. So, so what we do with that is essentially eject this agent, and we're just about to publish the first paper related to our most recent prototype, which is the first to our knowledge to demonstrate normalization of range of motion of a motion segment subsequent to injury. And the reason that's exciting is because that's where all of the decline starts is with a change in mechanics, particularly range of motion. So when we take out, when we injure the nucleus pulposus in an animal model, and then we study the mechanics, we see a clear increase in range of motion or hypermobility. And then when we inject this agent, qualitatively, we see none of it come out. And we notice that range of motion is statistically no different than the healthy, intact nucleus. So the next steps for us and for many of our colleagues around the country working on this is essentially to develop agents that will do just that on a long-term basis. You know, and certainly a, a week of effect is not adequate. The ideal would be years of effect. And then to take the next step and see if we can regrow native tissue in this what is a very harsh environment. Does it engender any immune response or any reaction? Well, that is probably the only upside of where we're working is that it's fairly immunoprotected. In the nucleus, there is not a big response, but all of us that are working on this are starting with agents that generally don't have a significant immune response. For instance, the prototype that we're working with, we can grow native cells from the disc on, we can grow fibroblasts on, and they will not only infiltrate this three-dimensional architecture, but they'll actually uh, set up uh, production of local matrix. Well, I very much want to thank Dr. Neil Maholtra, Assistant Professor of Neurosurgery at Penn Medicine, for discussing with us uh, three areas of exciting developments in neurosurgery. Dr. Maholtra, thank you so much for being with us on Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. To download this program or access ReachMD on demand, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.